What's up, guys? And welcome once again to another fresh edition of ESPN's Formula One podcast. I'm Alexis Nunes, and there would be no me in Formula One without these two, our gurus, Lawrence Edmondson and Nate Saunders. Interesting topic to talk about today. I know it's something that we've been planning, I suppose, in WhatsApp chats for probably a couple of weeks now. Nate, I think it's one that I definitely know I wanted to touch on with you because it stemmed from stuff that I've been watching now that I've been watching more behind the scenes stuff of Formula One and seeing just the the driver partnerships, so to speak, where I said that, you know, it didn't look as clear cut as I once thought. I thought it was always, you know, someone is the number one, someone's the number two, someone's like the prodigy and you kind of respect that. But then I saw a little bits, you know, that we see now with, you know, Max Verstappen or I've seen, you know, the Ferrari situation as well, where I didn't think Charles Leclerc could get feisty, but he can indeed. And then that, of course, stemmed to now looking at some rivalries that we can revisit. So we're going to call this one Rivalries Revisited. And we're going to look at probably the rivalry, the one that has been described as one of the best of all time. Um, whether it was beneficial, we'll get to that in a moment, but it was definitely entertaining for everyone to watch. I remember some of the headlines. You two actually lived through it, so I can't wait to hear your stories. And of course, everyone by now must know that I'm talking about Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes. We're going to thrash it out. Nate has prepared such a beautiful rundown so that we can stay in chronological order. Let's just, let's get into it. And and I forgot how detailed this all got when we were putting this together. Like every time you'd say, oh yeah, that happened, or this, you know, there was so much to it. It wasn't just one flashpoint. So there's so much for us to kind of dig through and unpack now. I'm really looking forward to it. I saw journalists, a lot of them compared it to the Senna-Prost rivalry. Um, that's two very big names, but of course, Roseburg and Hamilton are massive names now. And I guess we can start with the the good old days because these two are definitely... They started out as friends or something like that, right? Um, yeah, so the, the relationship actually dates back way before F1. Um, it goes back to their time in go-karts. Of course, most drivers start off in go-karts. Uh, Hamilton and Rosberg were no different. And they were teammates in 2000. Uh, they drove for the Mercedes-Benz McLaren karting team, which back then was pretty much one of the, one of the top kart teams going. And so the two of them would not only race against each other, but they were kind of sharing hotel rooms. Uh, there's some great stories about how they'd go for pizza and they'd race each other to finish the pizza first and stuff like that. Um, there's another great story about how Nico Rosberg was um, really into unicycles. So he would turn up in the karting paddock with the unicycle. Uh, and then when Hamilton learned this, he was like, oh, okay, that's quite cool. And he was like, okay, I'm going to get a unicycle. I'm going to be better than you. So for all his time outside the go-kart, he just spends it on a unicycle uh, trying to get better than Rosberg. And of course, Back then, I think, um, while it was incredibly serious, because this was the start of their careers, if they didn't get it right then, they wouldn't have made it to Formula 1. Uh, it was still, uh, I guess, friendly. I guess um, it's the same as like when you're at school, you might have kind of rivals in sports teams and stuff like that, but it's never that serious. Uh, but it wasn't quite as pressurised as it was in Formula 1. So um, the two of them were, were friends, kind of through circumstance, ending up in the same place, but came from completely different backgrounds, uh, Nico Rosberg is the son of 1982 world champion Keke Rosberg. So had pretty much every advantage going, uh, becoming a Formula One driver. Whereas Hamilton came from a completely different background. His father kind of remortgaged the house, took on many jobs to do it. Um, you know, Lewis kind of missed out on normal kind of schooling and stuff along the way just to make sure that he would, it was in a go-kart. And for Lewis, it was very much a case of if this year doesn't go well, it's all over. Uh, for Nico, it was quite different. And I think that was, 
an important part of the rivalry that kind of grew throughout the whole progression into Formula One and uh, was something that people would continue to draw on right up until uh, the years that they were battling each other for the championship. That is something that I think um, in reading a lot of people did kind of hint to that they, you know, always started at their upbringing. Like pretty much almost every article I read or every video that was trying to recap it, a journalist always kind of referenced that. Nate, do you think that that definitely had a big part to play in everything? Yeah, 100 percent. And I think it went both ways because Rosberg had the, I guess, the double edged sword of being a second generation driver and, and the suggestion can be that you're there on your name and not on who you know who you are as a driver. So whereas Lewis was kind of you know he kind of forced his way into the McLaren program, he famously told Ron Dennis when he was I think it was ten years old, he said I want to race for McLaren one day, got into the McLaren program that way. I I can see why he would have felt well, you know I've I've earned everything that I've got into Formula One, and you could easily look at someone like Rosberg and the disparity to say would be well he's here because his name's Rosberg. Now not entirely fair because Rosberg came into F1 and got results, but I think that that must have been something that the older they got, the more they thought about it. When they were kids, they probably didn't actually think about it that much. They they often say that when they were kids, they used to talk about, you know, how cool would it be if we both not just made it to Formula One, but we were both teammates one day and actually fighting for a championship in the same car. Like they both said that that's the conversations they had. So I think if it did become part of the rivalry, which I completely agree with Lawrence is correct, uh, it became something the older they got and the more they were able to look back at their kind of upbringing realize just how different they were and i suppose we could go through this now in the chronological order um starting with 2013 because that's really when it all set up when you know lewis i suppose made the sharp move of leaving mclaren to go to mercedes you guys of course must have covered that but what was that news like then was was it just pandemonium was it excitement to to finally see these two together again or because i know a lot of people kind of describe the move we laugh at it now, but as a, as a gamble for Lewis, because obviously Mercedes did not have any recent history of, of success in Formula One. And now we look back at it and go, ha, ha, ha. Interestingly, I wonder if Lawrence remembers this differently. There wasn't, the, most of the chat was about the Lewis move and him going to Mercedes. There wasn't so much talk about him and Rosberg, even though Rosberg had beaten Schumacher over those three years. Obviously, Schumacher was the guy Hamilton faced. Um, I'm not sure whether... Lawrence remembers it differently, but that's how I remembered that being. It was kind of very much Lewis is going there, and the, the the talk was has he made the wrong decision because that car's not going to be good enough. Not you know has he gone against a stronger teammate or whatever? Yeah, that was exactly it. And you have to remember um, the Mercedes team then was very different to the Mercedes team now. They had actually um, bought the Braun team in two thousand nine. Braun had won the championship with that single year under under Ross Braun's ownership. And uh, Ross Braun stayed on, but Mercedes had taken over the team. And uh, really, they had kind of failed to live up to expectations. And part of that was down to um, the fact that when Mercedes came in, they were kind of expecting to come into a slightly changing world in Formula 1 where there were promises of budget caps and stuff like that, which you have there now. And it didn't really work out. So Mercedes went in with this model where they thought, well, we're taking over a championship winning team. We're not going to have to spend that much money. And we're going to be winning races. And it just didn't happen. It didn't stick. And it was really down to uh, Nicky Lauda and Ross Braun at the time convincing Mercedes that it was worth spending the money uh, to push this team further. And part of that spending was Lewis Hamilton. Now, they had Michael Schumacher, obviously, uh, didn't come cheap and uh, was a big, big name still at the time. Uh, but with Lewis, that was seen as like a real progression of, of, of where they go next. But um, if you read some accounts of, of, of that time within Mercedes, there was some 
kind of there were some people in the Mercedes board who weren't that sure that Lewis was worth the money. But as far as everyone was concerned, they weren't at Ferrari, they weren't McLaren, they weren't Red Bull, which had come out and started dominating since 2010. And Lewis, uh, it would be a bit like kind of going to McLaren now from one of the top three teams. Um, funnily enough, a kind of reverse uh, scenario, but it would be like going to McLaren now in the hope that they get better. What Lewis knew and what uh, kind of Nicky Lauda has said to convince him was that there is this investment going in. The engine that we're building for the regulation changes in 2014 is showing some very impressive signs uh, in its early development. And uh, really, the whole setup uh, is, is based around that. And Daimler, Mercedes' parent company, have committed to it. And they want you to be a part of it. So that's what convinced him to go. And obviously, it turned out to be a brilliant decision. But yeah, at the time, it was uh, it, it, it was seen as a strange thing. And the whole Rosberg-Hamilton thing wasn't wasn't a huge talking point. They weren't really challenging for the championship. So, you know, they would talk about how great it is to have two drivers who know each other so well and, you know, kind of have this relationship and what a brilliant thing to build on. And Lewis brings kind of raw speed and talent. Nico brings the engineering side. And it was considered by many as like just a nice kind of combination of drivers. At that first test day in 2013 uh, in Jerez, uh, it was when we used to do the first test in Jerez. And Lewis turned up and actually had a pretty big accident on the on the first day. And, um, you know, after that, there were some big, big questions from certainly the uh, British newspapers, uh, which were still quite a power at that time and kind of uh, create an opinion in the sport. And some big questions about whether he had made the right decision because it had the sacks. And of course, it was, you know, just one of those things that happens in testing. But uh, it was very high profile. And I remember the other thing that happened that day, which I think the British newspapers agreed not to report on, was that they had announced BlackBerry as a, as a key sponsor. And Lewis had uh, posted something on Twitter and it said, sent from iPhone. And so all of a sudden there was this big <laughs> thing like on the first day, Lewis had made a faux pas by not using the correct phone and all this kind of stuff. So it was, a, it was a funny time, but, you know, Mercedes just weren't competing for championships at that time. Red Bull were the dominant force and Ferrari and McLaren were expected to challenge them. So, you know, it, it was it was kind of Lewis getting into a situation, the only one one race take here. So it was, a, it was very different to what we now remember of the Rosberg-Hamilton rivalry back in 2013. How would you describe both Nico and Lewis's career up to that point? Like how you think they would have sat or how are they viewed um, in the media? This this is kind of, it follows the same route as what we're saying about the upbringings, is their careers really couldn't have been a lot different um, because you had Hamilton had come in, immediately been that incredible rookie in 2007, won the championship in 2008, probably should have won a championship in either 2010 or 2012 if you look at those seasons. There were moments where, you know, if things had gone differently, he might have at least been in with a better chance. Certainly 2010, he could have won a championship. And Lewis was kind of, a lot of it, there was a frustration about him that he hadn't maybe fulfilled some of the potential that he had shown early on. He hadn't won all the championships we thought he would. By contrast, Rosberg had been at the other end of the, the grid for a lot of his career. He'd been with Williams. He'd obviously joined Mercedes. He only had one race win when they came together and um, I did my did my research ahead of the podcast. Hamilton had 21 to his name at that point. So that's a huge, sorry, sorry huge difference. That. Just didn't yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd, I thought I'd get one in there before Lawrence jumped in with some stats or something. Um, I did. I, I, I treated this podcast like an exam. I went, I went deep with the research. I really did. Like I've got numbers on a pad here. Um, but yeah, so if we were talking about contrasts in their upbringing. That's what is fascinating about this is they had complete contrast in their careers to that point as well. Rosberg was this guy who I think that, that there'd been chat that he could have been a world champion or he could have been a contender for it, but he'd never really had the car or the opportunity to do that. And he, I think people thought he was, he was quick, but maybe he was lacking what he needed to be, to be champion. So 
again, it was another completely contrasting situation that kind of put them at complete odds with each other. And then I guess just kind of in the same ebb and flow of that conversation, Lawrence, how would you have described, um, because their careers, as Nate said, were quite contrasting. And I saw a lot of um, people just as well in my research talking about their contrasting driving styles, because they said even from young people like, you know, Ron Dennis and a couple other people had highlighted, say, Lewis as someone who is just, look, he's just fast. He's fast and he, he can be aggressive and he'll get you. Whereas they thought that Nico Rosberg was more intelligent. He had it up here and they felt that that gave Rosberg the edge or that would have given him the edge um, from when they were kids, just because that's what you need to be the successful person in Formula One. I think it's, it's to some extent a little bit unfair. Like, you know, Lewis is uh, technically able, you know, he is, he is the guy who's he's, he's quite good like that. But uh, I think Rosberg was probably a step above almost all drivers in, in that regard and his kind of understanding of uh, the car and his understanding of engineering and things like that. Not so much from a hands-on perspective, but um, certainly uh, he was, he, he was, he is a very intelligent guy. Um, when he uh, joined Williams, they make all the drivers do an engineering test. And quite famously, he got the best score of any driver that had, uh, that had come. And he was, you know, kind of knocking on a similar uh, score of uh, some of the engineers that come to the team. So um, that was quite impressive. So, so there was certainly that side to the two of them. I think uh, Rosberg was still fairly highly regarded. The, the one thing which maybe carried Rosberg throughout or something that carried with Rosberg throughout his career was that uh, there was a certain ele- element of arrogance as well. And I don't know how much of that comes with being a, uh, son of a world champion, but I think uh, I remember I actually covered one of the races in GP2 in 2005 in Silverstone, and he walked around like you know he kind of owned the paddock, and he was you know he was the guy that everyone wanted to talk to. He had the big name in junior formulas, you know. So often the drivers are trying to make for a, na- a name for themselves, but he was you know he had that name. But yes, yeah, so, so Rosberg came in, and I think he always had that confidence inside. And the other thing he had was Schumacher, who, as Nate said, like Rosberg got the better of Schumacher when they were at Mercedes together, but. Rosberg learned a lot from Schumacher, and a lot of it was just kind of how you go around and how you kind of treat people within the team and stuff like that. So Schumacher would know everyone's birthday, he would know everyone's name and stuff like that. And Rosberg made a real effort to try and learn uh, all the mechanics' names and names of their kids and stuff like that. So he always had like a touch point to try and um, to try and kind of uh, talk to them. And Lewis is a bit different like that. He just kind of comes in and uh, gets the job done. Often just jumps in the car and, and you know and goes with it, and maybe doesn't have that kind of uh, attention to detail that uh, that Rosberg um, was quite famous for, and I think also something that really helped him uh, as we go later into his championship year, which we'll talk about in a bit, I'm sure. All right, so I suppose 2013, we have to start there because that's where it started. And I mean, there were, I suppose, you could say the first sign of tensions from what I'm gathering just reading each race. It started at the Malaysian Grand Prix where... Um, Certain things happen. Somebody was told not to pass somebody, and that obviously did not sit very well. So, guys, just I mean, take it away. What was your experience of that Malaysian Grand Prix um, like back in 2013? Yeah, um, I, I was at that race, and the Mercedes story wasn't the story at all. It was about Red Bull because Red Bull had pretty much exactly uh, or a similar situation around team orders, as uh, famously known as Multi 21. Uh, because that was a radio message that was given to um, Sebastian Vettel, who was closing on his teammate Mark Webber, who was leading the race. The 21 referred to number two being first and number one being second. Vettel was the reigning champion. He was number one in his car. Webber was uh, his teammate, so he was number two. What Vettel went and did was he went and overtook uh, Mark Webber, as Webber wasn't really expecting it. Uh, they had this big kind of ding-dong battle at the front, nearly took each other out, didn't quite. 
went on to finish and uh, Vettel finished ahead of Weber. And all of our concentration uh, from a media perspective was on that. But meanwhile, further back, there was a similar uh, kind of um, thing playing out in which uh, Rosberg was behind Hamilton, I think, and, uh, and could have overtaken but didn't. And so, uh, and that was on the team order as well. And so, I mean, when you look at the two, obviously the Red Bull one was a bigger story. It was a team fighting for the win. And also it was a far more controversial storyline. But yeah, there's arguments that it was the start of, start of kind of the rivalry. But to be honest, I really don't think it was because as I said before, it was a time when, you know, Mercedes weren't fighting for the championship anyway. The fact, if you actually watch this again, which I did, and again, the, all the highlights basically focus on Red Bull and Mark Webber and Vettel. But when, when Hamilton got that order, he actually protested it. When he was told, oh, Rosberg's not going to pass you, Hamilton actually said, well, no, like, I don't agree with that. I think we should be out of race. And Ross Braun, who was the uh, team boss at the time, said, no, that's the decision we've made. Lewis was quite new at the team and they, you know, it was, it was a podium finish. It was a strong finish. So the team wanted to consolidate that. But if you take that incident and you put it against what we saw in the next few years, the fact that Lewis was even there saying, hey, look, I think, you know, if, if Nico's quicker than me, he should get past me. It showed you that a they didn't have, yeah, and they didn't have they didn't have the title winning mindset like at the time because the car wasn't in that place. But also, I think that it showed you that at that point there that there wasn't there wasn't any tension, there wasn't any business between the two of them. If if you watch the podium ceremony back, Martin Brundle um, does the interviews and he says this is the first um, podium ceremony I've ever done where all three drivers are unhappy about being up here because Lewis was a bit. Felt a bit uneasy that Mercedes hadn't let Rosberg like race him, obviously. And then the two Red Bull guys, basically, the last place they wanted to be was the next to each other on the podium. So that was just a quite interesting thing in what was pretty much a mundane year in terms of the actual rivalry because Mercedes was off the pace and really they weren't, they, they had no reason to be battling each other behind the scenes. Just looking at 2013 and then just that and how the mood was there, how on earth did it just sour so quickly did you see any other signs in, in in 2013 of that or was it literally just 2014 new year and that's when the real downhill started when they're fighting for a championship it all becomes very very serious you know it's quite easy to be mates when you're not so you look at Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz at the moment at McLaren uh get on really well kind of you know joke with each other all the time and stuff like that and guarantee you if they were fighting for a championship it wouldn't be the same you know I'm sure they've got a good build on but it just wouldn't because you know, all of a sudden, your whole career, your whole life has built up to this point of fighting for a championship. And the guy next to you is the first in line who's going to take it away from you. So um, that's what did it. And, and so all of a sudden, you had a situation where Mercedes were out there by themselves and there was no external threat. And so it was all internal. It was down to those two drivers, same equipment, head to head, and let's see who's best. And that was when it became a big thing, uh, partly because, of course, Rosberg, was fighting for his first ever championship. And Lewis, after all that time at McLaren, where it hadn't really quite come together, felt that he was probably deserving of more than just the one championship he had to his name at that point. Uh, and I think there's very few people that would disagree with that. So it, there was a lot of pressure on him to capitalise now that he was in a position uh, where he had a car that was head and shoulders above the rest, which during his time at McLaren, he had very good cars, but there was never a situation where there was no rival team going up against him. Just to follow on from what Lawrence was saying there was, I think as soon as Hamilton realised how good that car was, his mindset switched, as Lawrence said. I don't think Rosberg really appreciated how much he would have to view Lewis as an adversary at the start of the season. You know, if you look at the body language between the two, it was still quite friendly early on. But as we'll touch on, there were, there were certain things that were happening. And I think 
Lewis had very much switched to, this is now my rival, the person standing between me and my second championship. And that's what made the dynamic really interesting early on. And we, we see that change very quickly as we talk about Monaco being an interesting example. At what point do both of them get on the same page of, I've got to beat this guy for the championship and I need to do anything to do it. All right, well, I suppose let's might as well jump right straight into the, the different races now in 2014 because I realize that that's where the motor oil really hit the fan. So shall we just start then with Bahrain, the Bahrain Grand Prix? And Nate, they almost got a little glimmer in his eye there and a little chuckle in his, in his well, smile. <laughs> F1 just put this on YouTube and it was a really good race. And it's mainly because of the two guys at the front and they're going wheel to wheel early on. It's, it's really, it's, it's worth watching. There's a, there's a, there's a short highlights compilation of them. It, it was a thrilling race. And at the time we were worried that because these two cars were so far ahead of everyone else that we weren't going to see many battles this year. So the fact that they had a, a pretty close battle early in the season went by without any incident in terms of them hitting each other. And it was exactly the sort of thing that Mercedes would have thought, well, if, if they can keep fighting cleanly like this all season, then we're golden. Obviously, we know that wasn't the case, as it turned out. Um, but what was interesting, and I'm, I'm sure Lawrence will talk about this as well, was when they went wheel to wheel, Lewis always came out on top. And at the end, he actually had the tyre disadvantage in that situation, which made that, again, a, a feather in the cap of Lewis in terms of, of coming out on top of that race and winning that race over, over Rosberg. The most interesting thing about it was what was going on uh, behind the scenes and on the steering wheel and also over the radio channels because Nico Rosberg at one stage was using basically the qualifying mode, which the drivers were told you're not allowed to use. And the reason they're not allowed to use it is because if you use it too much, um, you basically limit the mileage of the engine massively. It is now, it was back then, that you were limited on engine components. So if you go through them very early in the season, you're going to have grid penalties later in the year. And Mercedes wanted, one, they don't want engine failures in front of everyone, but two, um, they want to make sure you know their drivers are going to be competing right to the end of the year with the engine allowance they had. So Rosberg was going into what was called strap mode six, and um, uh, his engineer realised, and he said, are you in strap mode six? And, uh, and then um, kind of Rosberg got a bit of a telling off for it. Um, but later in the race, they actually, he was going into it and then Hamilton's side of the garage, which could see all the temperature coming through, realised that he was in it. So all of a sudden Hamilton was like, wait a minute, Rosberg's using the special engine mode. Why aren't I allowed to use it? And they started using it as well. So they started mirroring each other. So um, up with this amazing wheel-to-wheel -wheel battle, which is like, you know, kind of watching go-karts going around, they had all these kind of technical things going on in the background as well. And uh, And really that was, I think, uh, the start of, of of when the relationship was a bit sour because there was a little bit of kind of trying to pull one, you know, over the other. And so uh, at the end of the race, there's, you know, it's quite a famous scene and some, uh, lots of photographs of it. The two of them kind of like play, play punching in the, uh, in part for May and kind of like cuddling a bit and stuff like that. And uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's a bit like when you see a couple of puppies like fight each other. It's kind of serious. It's kind of not serious. Yeah. But um, but I think when puppies. we started to play out, <laughs> to play out what, what had happened in that race, and once they got a better understanding of, of what the two sides of the garage were doing, yeah, th th that had a big impact. So that was kind of where it really started to get a little bit interesting, maybe slightly underhand as well, and like and and, and so that became a big thing. Shall we move on to the next race then? Because Spain, I know, also was quite was quite a juicy one, wasn't it, Nate? Well, Spain was then <clears throat> to follow on from that was the reverse of that, and if mm -hmm. I remember correctly, was Hamilton using engine modes to keep Rosberg at bay. They finished 0.6 seconds apart at the finish line, 
And the reason that happened was because Hamilton then had used the engine modes that Rosberg had been using in the in the fight in Bahrain. It just started to become a bit of a stressful situation, I guess, for management. But I think the real flashpoint in this whole season was the next race was Monaco. And I believe Lawrence was there for that. And I've always been fascinated how that how that played out. Um, because it was, I mean, I think to this day, one of the most infamous incidents of the of the past decade. Um, and a lot of people have very different opinions on it. And I think I know, I think I remember what Lawrence is, is on it. Lawrence, over to you. <laughs> yeah, so, so what happened, uh, that was during qualifying in, in Monaco. And again, Mercedes looked very quick. It looked like they should be able to take pole position. Um, but the big thing about Monaco uh, is basically getting a quick lap time in and then uh, kind of making sure that you get that lap time in. Because if you don't, if there's an accident on the track or something happens, uh, then you're basically going to lose your lap time. It's not like other tracks where there's huge runoff and stuff like that, and you can carry on and, and, and so on. So uh, one minor problem, and, and it all goes out the window. And uh, they finished their first runs in Q3, so the bit that decides pole position, and uh, Rosberg was ahead. And uh, he was also going out first on track for the... Um, for the second bit, which is usually a slight disadvantage if you're first on track because the track conditions get marginally better uh, towards the end of the session. So potentially Lewis had uh, had it within him to kind of to, to beat Rosberg to a visual pole position from the first attempt. So Rosberg went out and he made a bit of a mistake in the first sector, if I remember correctly, he was slightly down. And then uh, he went through Casino Square, which is a very high speed part of the track, and then down the hill towards Mirabu. And Mirabu is a corner which isn't, Really, I mean, you, you do see mistakes there. It's, you know, it's better fair to say you don't. But funny enough, Rosberg on track, um, ahead of Hamilton on track, uh, with pole position half in the pocket because of his provisional time, went long into the uh, into the runoff, locked a brake, and brought out yellow flags, which meant that everybody behind him would have to slow down and wouldn't be able to improve their lap time either. The more you kind of looked at the um, the onboard footage, the more it looked like a really clumsy error. And uh, I think for a lot of us who looked at it and a lot of us who had seen, you know, many laps of that track that weekend, we decided that it basically looked like he'd done it on purpose. He locked up his brake knowing by putting too much pressure on the pedal, uh, going into the corner, braking a bit too late, he would go and run off and that would ruin Lewis's lap. And he wouldn't damage his car by doing it because there was enough runoff at that part of the track, but he would bring out yellow flags, which meant that anybody behind couldn't improve. Now, of course, Rosberg said that wasn't the case. Um, the stewards decided that that wasn't the case. But Lewis was absolutely furious because it meant that he would start second on the grid. And in Monaco, unless something big happens, uh, it's so hard to overtake there that he wasn't going to get past Rosberg. And as it turned out, he didn't. And so Rosberg, uh, I think, extended his lead in the championship at that point. Famously afterwards, he said that uh, him and Nico were no longer friends. They were just <laughs> colleagues. Which sounds properly schoolboy, doesn't it? But... Um, but you know, it was it was a big thing because uh, you know we still believe that these two have been friends since they were kids, and everyone was like, "Well, you know, isn't isn't that friendship enough?" And he said, "No, you know, we're not actually friends. You know, I can count my friends on one hand, and Nico's definitely not one of them. He's a colleague." So um, that kind of set the tone a bit going into the rest of the season. And of course, it was on the back of all those little kind of engine mode things kind of bubbling up as well. And so when it was something much more blatant, much more obvious. Uh, I think it, it, it really kind of came out. And of course, this was all in public. All the engine mode stuff hadn't really been picked up on at the time. But this Rosberg move in, in qualifying in Monaco was very, very public, very, very obvious. And a lot of people held the same view as Lewis. Then after, Nate, I know you've definitely pinpointed Hungary and then the grand finale in Abu Dhabi. What happened in that time? And then just 
before we get into 2015, how would you have just described yeah. and, 20, the end well, of 2014? I've made a huge error because I've misspelled your mouth, which was the biggest incident of that year. And it followed, it came after Hungary. And Hungary is key to explaining what happened in Belgium. Hungary, basically, again, we were talking team orders. Um, it was actually a fantastic race. Um, Daniel Ricciardo won the race at the end and he came through the field. Lewis, I can't remember exactly what had happened to him, but he started at the, at the back end, um, was on a different strategy to Rosberg. And at one point, they were basically on different strategies. Rosberg needed to get past Lewis for his strategy to be optimized. So Mercedes said to Lewis, you have to let Rosberg pass you. And Lewis said, I'm not slowing down to let Nico pass me. If he, if he gets close enough, I'll let him pass. If he wants to pass me, I'll pass. But then you had all these radio messages from Rosberg saying, why, why isn't he letting me through? Thinking, and he'd been told that Lewis is going to let you pass, thinking that Lewis was going to move over. And I mean, I'm not sure if it cost Rosberg the win or, or whatever, but it, it, it was another incident where you this was playing out over the radio. These two guys, it looked like Lewis was basically saying, I'm not letting you pass. I wonder if Rosberg had been close enough, whether Lewis would have let him pass. That's what he was suggesting. But again, he, his reasoning afterwards was, I'm not letting a, a guy pass who is my championship run. Um, and I think that for Rosberg, that it just, it, he then went into the summer break and he just had four weeks to just think about this incident. And then we got to Spa. So this was the moment that this went from, we'd seen them fight on track wheel to wheel fairly. And then Belgium um, is where we saw the collision on track for the first time. Lawrence, what are your memories of it? Yeah, so Belgium proved to be um, really one of the, well, as far as I remember, probably the biggest uh, kind of explosion of that rivalry that year because despite all the problems they'd had, all the bickering, all the kind of he's not my friend, schoolboy stuff early in the year, engine modes and all that kind of nonsense, um, it came to an actual collision, an on-track collision in, in Spa. And uh, Mercedes at that point really should, should have been winning pretty much all the races that year, apart from when they have reliability issues. And Spa was definitely a track that they should have won. And so they started the race and uh, Lewis was leading Nico. And on the second lap, uh, Nico attempted an overtaking move into Lecom, uh, got alongside Lewis, left his nose in there when really he probably should have backed out. Uh, the corner was almost certainly Lewis's. And um, as a result, they collided. Nico's front wing tapped against Lewis's rear tyre. Uh, the damage caused by the puncture that Lewis had uh, meant he dropped out of the race. Uh, and so uh, Daniel Ricciardo went on to win that race. So Mercedes had lost out on a victory they should have had. So this whole time they'd had this rivalry kind of going on uh, between their drivers, but it hadn't cost them a race victory and now it had. And so it become incredibly serious, not to mention the fact that uh, Nico, by getting this victory, um, kind of also gave him a little bit of an advantage in the championship while Lewis dropped further back. But the really interesting and spicy stuff is is um, what happened afterwards in the uh, post-race debrief. He said, I was trying to prove a point. And uh, Lewis, quite understandably, took that as, I did it on purpose. Um, and so from that point onwards, the rivalry just completely changed. Like any, anything that was left there in terms of kind of friendship and stuff like that uh, was blown out at, at that point. And Mercedes were into crisis management. You know, they had this amazing car. They invested all this money to go right to the top of the championship. They're going to win both championships that year uh, without any doubt, really. And all of a sudden, um, 
the two drivers are at war and, you know, it's costing them victories and making them look a bit silly. I mean, I was of the opinion at the time it was it was Nico's fault, uh, the, the collision. It didn't have to happen. He could have backed out. And then for Nico to say I was trying to prove a point, well, arguably there should have been some better management before so that he didn't have to prove a point into that corner. But even so, it, it, it basically meant that it was war going into it. But... Um, but from that point onwards, uh, Lewis put it together an amazing run of, uh, run of victories to, uh, to win the championship. And that's what ultimately got it. And I think a lot of that was spurred on by, by what happened in, in Spa and what Nico did. Uh, so, um, it was a real kind of, uh, turning point in the championship, uh, but a massive turning point in the relationship between the two drivers. So what was the, did Mercedes try to do any damage control? What were some of the quotes from the powers that be that said of trying to, I suppose, handle that situation that obviously sounded like it was festering? I remember Nicky Lauda being pretty upset about it afterwards. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Lawrence, but that's where the rules of engagement were first kind of outlined for Mercedes. But they, they also afterwards, every race after basically both drivers, every question was basically, hey, what happens if you guys hit each other again? And they're like, well, we're not going to do it. And the opposite response to that was, well, you have done it already. Um, and I think if Mercedes had been in the championship fight with anyone else, it probably would have looked a lot worse for them. Um, but it, as it turned out, it was just probably something that they didn't want to have to be dealing with. But at the end of the day, they were still winning the championship. But um, the thing I remember from that is Rosberg being booed on the podium after uh, when he was on the podium, the fans booed him. And he, there was a big thing in the British press because then he blamed that on British fans. So again, it added just another, and you know, it probably was, it probably was Hamilton fans who were booing him, but it just, every little thing that was said at that point then became another level to this rivalry. And at the time, because Lewis was chasing Rosberg in the points uh, standings, it made, it made Rosberg was kind of the target for Hamilton. And I think anything he could do to, to kind of ramp that up. He would, he would have taken advantage of. Well, 2015 now. Um, I remember that year. It was my first year at ESPN. So, and I remember at the end of it, we're just fast forwarding because I did have to actually just quickly run this story for ESPN Caribbean. And it was when Lewis, of course, had won everything, the world championship, and he won it early as well. Um, so just, I guess, take me back through that, you know, that year and, and how the rivalry kind of evolved there. Yeah, it wasn't um, such a big year for the rivalry because Lewis was better and uh, came out on top and won it by the US Grand Prix. So um, it was kind of more it was similar to kind of the years that we have now with Lewis winning. Uh, you know, it's kind of nicely wrapped up beforehand. Um, but no doubt uh, it was a big influence on what happened in 2016 because yeah. Nico all of a sudden realised that he needed to change stuff. He, if he was going to beat Lewis and if he was going to achieve his goal of being a world champion, remember by this point, Lewis had just become a three-time world champion. And Nico, who had been in the same go-karts in 2000 and all that kind of stuff, was still on zero championships, despite now having the car capable of doing it for two years in a row. So for Nico, it was a big wake-up call. And uh, he completely changed the way he went about uh, kind of managing his life, really, uh, going into 2016. He basically put Formula 1 above uh, his wife, above his family life, above everything. Uh, which sounds, you know, kind of uh, crazy, but, you know, that's exactly what he did. And so he would go go-karting between races and stuff like that. He would have this special way of dealing with time zones where he would move one hour at a time towards the next race rather than just turning up and trying to adapt, you know, by, to a, like, eight-hour shift or whatever. And so he put all this effort in, all this training in, all this kind of background uh, work because he realised from 2015 that 
realistically, on raw talent, Lewis had the edge. So the only way he could beat him was by um, putting in a massive amount of uh, effort behind the scene and probably taking a few liberties with uh, with mind games and stuff like that and kind of trying to get into Lewis's head. And so that 2015 season, although um, it was, you know, a great success for Lewis, it kind of set up um, uh, Rosberg going into the next year. And crucially, Rosberg also took three wins at the end of that season. So once uh, Lewis had won, uh, Rosberg went on a little kind of winning spree at the end. And uh, it meant that by the time we got into the start of the following season, and Lewis had a whole load of bad luck, all of a sudden the amount of time that Lewis hadn't won a race for was growing and growing and growing. And so the pressure was on Lewis as well. Um, but so it, it wasn't it wasn't a kind of classic season by any stretch of the imagination 2015, but it was crucial for what came in, in 2016. Okay, guys, so we'll definitely get into 2016 now because that obviously a lot happened in that year. Lawrence kind of just gave us a little, a little taste of exactly why 2016 probably um, panned out for at least Nico Rosberg as, um, as it did. So let's just talk about how, how it happened. How it started? What's your earliest memory of it? Well, the season, uh, started very well for Rosberg. And that was mainly because Lewis had a series of, of issues and also some self-inflicted issues there. He had two really bad starts. I think he qualified on pole in Australia, uh, but had made a really bad start. Rosberg got ahead. Lewis was making mistakes. And so stuff like that was, was quite interesting because, um, from that point onwards, like Lewis, uh, had a, um, made sure that he practiced his starts before he got into, into the car. So the start procedure is usually with the clutch and kind of, and selecting the gear and stuff like that. And you have all the special settings and everything. And so he had in his, uh, in his, in his room, he had installed a, a steering wheel, his kind of driver's room. And I don't think he had that before he started having those early issues, but the reliability issues weren't his fault. They were just kind of typical kind of problems that, you know, you often get with cars, especially when they're, they're fairly new, but they were all happening on Lewis's side of the garage. And to add to the kind of uh, conspiracy theories and maybe some things that were going on in Lewis's head at the start of the year, Mercedes had decided to switch uh, a number of mechanics from either side of the garage. Uh, Mercedes worried that it was very much becoming a Rosberg camp and a Lewis Hamilton camp and that there was a danger that it could just, you know, divide the whole team. So they moved a few of the mechanics around, swapped them up. Uh, but in, uh, in Lewis's head, that was a big thing all of a sudden because he'd lost uh, his guys and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know how much of that was true or whatever, but the reliability issues weren't traced to, to the mechanics work on the car. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't the case. So that wasn't really linked. It was down to just, uh, problems, uh, in the designs of them. All of a sudden Lewis was all these points down on Rosberg and, uh, and yeah, so they got through the first four rounds and uh, I think Lewis felt pretty hard done by. And meanwhile, Rosberg was waving, uh, sorry, surfing this wave. Uh, that started at the final three races of the previous year. And Lewis hadn't won a race in something like six months, mm. which considering the car was head and shoulders above the rest was a considerable amount of time. Okay, you'd had the winter break in there, but it was still a long time from victory to victory for, for Lewis. But then we get to the really spicy moment in the, in, in the whole, um, well, the whole kind of rivalry really, which was Spain 2016. Oh. So I, 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 I Oh, yeah, Nate should get there because literally, as you just said, now we get into the real spicy moment. Nate's eyes just lit up. He loves a collision, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason, the reason my eyes lit up was because, um, this was the, the third race I covered. It was the first one I think I covered that was just myself there. And so much happened that weekend. So that was actually Max Verstappen's first weekend at Red Bull. He won the race when Rosberg and Hamilton 
took themselves out on lap one. And that is probably, as Lawrence said, is like the famous image of this um, rivalry. And there's actually so much to the collision to unpack. Because when you, when you first watch it, the start is that Hamilton has a slow getaway. Rosberg gets him through turn one, but it's slower coming out of turn two. Uh, Hamilton goes to pass him on the run down to turn three. Rosberg goes across to block him. They collide. They go out. So when you see it in real time, you think, oh, okay, they've, they've, they've collided again. And there was so much to this that came out in the days afterwards, one of which being that on the formation lap, Rosberg had basically entered his car into an incorrect engine mode that left him down on power when Hamilton came back to um, uh, try and take the place back. That's why the stewards didn't take any action on it, because they saw that Hamilton's car was, I think it was 17 kph quicker than Rosberg's coming out of that corner. And basically, you had this incredible situation where the two lead lead guys ended up in the gravel. Lewis threw his steering wheel out, had his head in his hands. And I could, I'll never forget this. As soon as that happened, everybody's attention was suddenly on Mercedes. I'll always remember them coming into the media center, sorry, into the Mercedes motorhome afterwards for their media sessions. I thought Lewis was going to be the KG1. Rosberg was going to think, okay, well, it could have been worse. He could have got points on me. But as it turned out, Rosberg was the frustrated one. And Lewis was actually quite relaxed in it. I think that the reason he was quite relaxed in it was because in his head, he didn't have any blame attributed to himself uh, mm. for that incident. And even though he left in exactly the same situation he'd been in coming into the race in terms of points difference, um, I think he felt that Rosberg had moved across him to to stop him getting by, basically. The more you watch it, the, the you know, if you watch it from onboard Rosberg, onboard, onboard Lewis, you can can see it different ways so it was just it was it was the the flashpoint it was basically belgium turned up to about 10 because they both ended up in the ground they both ended up out of the race and you know mercedes at this point were absolutely furious with both of them because they'd obviously told them before don't you dare crash into each other again um yeah and from a from a journalistic point of view it's this the sort of thing you remember isn't it when those sort of thing ha- things happen i can I, I can still remember rosberg's face afterwards and if if you'd sat in there and you hadn't seen the race or you hadn't seen the context of the season before it, you'd have thought Rosberg was the guy who hadn't won a race in six months and had just crashed out of the race. But for some reason, the body language was much different afterwards. And I think that um, it said a lot about where the two guys were at that point. I think Lewis was very, very confident in how he'd driven in that situation. Um, and yeah, but like I said, the, the, the engine stuff, which basically set that situation up, and so it wasn't even a case of one driver took the exit better than the other one. It was that Rosberg's car was physically down on power to to Hamilton's. And I'm pretty sure is that that's right, isn't it, Lawrence? That it was the formation lap it set that it made that switch error. So it wasn't even that it made it during turn one or during turn two. On the steering wheel, they had this little switch, which goes back to what we're talking about in 2014, where they were deciding which engine mode they would be in. And uh, you have like your kind of your race mode, and so. Uh, when they're doing the formation lap on the way to the grid, they're not in the race mode. They're in what's called a harvesting mode to try and fill the battery with as much energy as possible for that first lap. And so uh, Rosberg had left it in that, and then he'd engaged race start mode, which is a separate button. And so he pressed that button, and that had given him uh, the normal amount of, or the maximum amount of power that you could want uh, away from the start and for, through the first few corners. But that race start mode eventually cancels itself and it defaults back to whatever mode you're in on the other toggle. And so when it defaulted back to the uh, formation lap mode, all of a sudden Rosberg's car started trying to harvest energy from the rear uh, axle, which is what 
it does to kind of power the uh, the energy recovery system. And as it as it did that, the car just slowed down massively as Hamilton, who was in the correct mode, continued to accelerate. So that accounted for the 17 kilometers an hour uh, difference. I remember Nicky Lauda talking to TV cameras and saying that he felt that Nicky Lauda was the chairman of Mercedes at the time, uh, that he felt Hamilton was to blame. So it really did divide opinion. And I don't mean there was like a correct answer either way. But um, the other thing I remember uh, were all the Mercedes members going into the engineering truck and kind of following each other. And it wasn't only that, it was also the Mercedes board. So the Daimler board, the really kind of, you know, the big wigs who pay the big money to make sure that this team goes racing had seen, uh, they were there expecting to see a one-two victory. That's what the car was capable of. And they'd seen both cars taken out by each other on the first lap. So they all kind of crammed into this engineering room and had this big kind of uh, meeting, emergency meeting, while the race was going on. Uh, but, you know, they didn't care about the race anymore because there was nothing left for them to race for. But um, this huge thing, and it went on for, well, it went on for the rest of uh, the time that they were teammates in Mercedes, because this is when the rules of engagement uh, between the two drivers got that bit stricter. So the rules that Toto Wolff and Nicky Lauda put down uh, started to have some very severe consequences. And uh, Nicky talked about it in an interview uh, in 2017, um, a year afterwards, it, the rules of engagement all of a sudden had the um, clause that if you kind of do something that's bad for the team, you know, and it's 100% your fault and it's quite obvious, then we can release you from your contract. So all of a sudden it becomes incredibly serious because you've got these two drivers who are in world championship winning machinery going for victory and the team is starting to hang over their head. Look, guys, if you don't behave, you're out. And, you know, it's as simple as that. And that... You know, it's so rare in Formula One that, you know, a driver will get fired, but that's the level they had to take it to. And, uh, I believe there were also kind of financial, uh, penalties that they, they could hold over them as well, uh, deductions in, in, in salary and so on. But according to Lauda, they had the ultimate kind of, uh, kind of, uh, penalty of, you know, you're out of your contract. And those rules didn't really work, did they? Because <laughs> a few races later, Austria, they hit each other again. And that one, well, Laz said, Spain divided opinion. I think Austria is one of the great examples of, um, well, I, I think that did divide opinion, but in the paddocks, but it's, it's the last lap. It was a great moment. Lewis trying to go around the outside of Rosberg and Rosberg just forgetting that the, the, the corner he had to turn right for, but instead he, he, he seemed to turn left, which, you know, honest mistake, I guess, easy mistake to make. Lewis still won the race, but it was again, two guys hitting each other. And um, I'm not sure if those rules applied afterwards, the, the louder rules. Lawrence's opinion on Rosberg-Hamilton, was anyone to blame? Uh, was my assessment yeah. of it fair? Uh, well, he didn't quite turn left. He just didn't turn into the corner. So, um, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's corner, yeah. And there's a lot of runoff there. So there's a big space you can kind of drive into. And essentially what Rosberg was doing was trying to make Lewis turn in as late as possible, completely compromise his exit to the corner so he didn't get past him into the next one. Uh, but... I, you know, I, I think he pushed it too far and it looked clumsy. It looked, it looked obvious. It was a bit like the Monaco 2014 lockup, uh, during qualifying. It was the same kind of thing. In that instance, Lewis went on to win the race. And so kind of, he wasn't really to blame for what happened and he benefited from it. Whereas Rosberg really didn't, you know, he went, he went backwards. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there was a little bit of kind of like, well, punishment was delivered that way, but I don't know about the details. I don't know whether they, uh, were they, upheld the, you know, docking of wages and so on and, and how it came out. Because to be fair to Mercedes, even though they made it clear that these rules existed, they would never talk, um, certainly at the time, in public about what, what exactly they involved and, 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 you know, and when they were used. Nate, you wanted to highlight 
pretty much Lewis's actions in, in, in Abu Dhabi. I mean, Lewis was basically the guy that made that championship decider tense at all because he needed Rosberg to finish off the podium and win the race. And the problem he had at the end of the season was he was winning races and Rosberg was finishing second behind him. The key being that in Malaysia, Lewis's engine had failed. Rosberg had basically got enough of a points gap. They didn't have to win again to win a championship. So what we had was after the final pit stops, Lewis basically, he was slowing the pace, pace down so that um, Vettel and Verstappen would catch Rosberg in the hope that both would overtake him later on. And it got pretty serious in the car. You know, Paddy Lowe, Toto Wolf, both on the radio to Lewis saying, you need, you need to... You need to, you know, pick the pace up. And he was saying, "Well, I'm, I'm going to lose the championship for a quick pace up. This is all I can do." Um, and Sebastian Vettel afterwards said that, you know, I think he said something like, "Oh, Lewis was trying some dirty tricks to try and, win, you know, try and win the championship." I remember that headline going around. But I thought it was actually quite a fascinating insight into, into what Lewis was willing to do to win the championship. At no point did he try and drive Rosberg off the track. There was no kind of Senna moment or Schumacher moment where he drove the other guy off the track to win the championship. But it was. It was a guy still able to control the pace of this race while still backing his teammate and his rival into two cars coming up behind him and still managed to control everything like that. It was super tense right until the end because all it, all it needed was Rosberg to make one tiny mistake of Etelin and Stafford right behind him. So I actually think that was Rosberg's most impressive performance because the, the pressure in that car must have been unreal. And Lewis basically was saying to him, if you want to win this championship, you've got to be flawless from now until the end of the race. Um, but it was, it was fascinating. And it was actually, you know, in hindsight, we now know it was the final act of the whole rivalry. It was quite a nice way for it to finish because Rosberg had always been the guy on the receiving end. He'd always been the guy that hadn't quite done enough to win the championship. And then finally, when it mattered, he delivered. And yeah, it was, it was a great way for him to not just wrap up the rivalry, but as it turned out, wrap his, um, his career up as well. But I remember that whole weekend and Lawrence and I were both there. It was, it was, it was great. And it's one thing Formula One's lacked since is having a, a real finale, a real showdown of the final race. Because even though Rosberg, you know, he, he had the points advantage going into it, quite, quite a big points advantage, there was still that element of the unknown. And that's what made this rivalry great, is that we got two races at the end of the season where where Lewis won the first one in Abu Dhabi in 2014, and then Rosberg won the other one in 2016. And that was, that was a fascinating weekend to cover as well, I remember, because they were both in the press conference together. And it was in that press conference that Lewis referenced the mechanic switch again as something, you know, and he said, oh, I've got some stories which are going to come out in my biography down the line. And then uh, it was Nico's turn to um, to answer that. And he's like, oh, I think it's been great. It's been great for the team. The team's never been happier than when we had this mechanic switch because, you know, it's kind of created some balance and stuff like that. And so there were things like that going on behind the scene. And there was also, this was pure Rosberg in terms of playing mind games with Hamilton. Tiny little, again, schoolboy stuff, but... Before each race, the drivers go around on a driver's parade. If you've ever been to a Grand Prix, you'll see them. The idea is that they wave to all the fans as they go around. And Lewis had this habit of going and sitting right at the front of the truck. So he'd put his headphones on and he'd chill out and he wouldn't talk to any other drivers. He'd try not to do an interview if he could and he'd kind of wave at everyone as he goes around. And Rosberg knew that he loved to do this. He knew this was part of Hamilton's preparation pre-race. So Rosberg, as soon as the, um, basically the pit lane opened where they're all held just before, ran to the truck ran on the truck and went and sat directly where he knew Lewis would want to be. And as Lewis kind of came on and didn't really know what was going on, kind of looked, there was uh, Nico there smiling at him from the other end of the truck as he walked up to his usual spot. Then Nico just sat there the whole time doing the Lewis thing, waving and stuff like that. And it was all these small little things like along the way, any opportunity Nico had to slightly disrupt Lewis' plans, he would do it just to, um, just to try and get in Lewis's head, disrupt him as much as possible. 
And then, of course, um, I suppose, as you said, in hindsight, we look back on it and it was the final um, hurrah in that rivalry because um, Nico dropped the mic and call it quits just right after that. I mean, that's that's one way to exit. What was your guys' opinion on that? Did you see it coming? Was it as big of a shock as, you know, some people probably took it as? It, it was a massive shock. So it came um, – they don't give the – driver the championship trophy when he wins it they have to go to a gala event held by the FIA and uh, and go and pick it up and that year it was in Austria so um we all went over to Austria and uh before we put on our kind of bow ties and all that kind of stuff and dinner jackets and went to dinner and um, there was a press conference and so um we were kind of looking forward to kind of getting stuck into that you know moving the story along a little bit and then next thing we know uh Nico uh comes up and says that he's He's retiring from F1, and it was done one of those normal things, or not normal things, sorry, one of those things where he kind of, you know, he took the mic aside and he just said, oh, look, um, I just got something I want to say before you start asking me questions, and then just dropped it there. You know, I'm going to leave F1 at the end of this year. Um, I couldn't quite believe it. I remember writing the story, and I had to ask questions. I was again like, wait a minute, do you mean you're taking a sabbatical? Do you mean you're going to come back, or is this this it, it? And he's like, no, this is completely it. And it turned out he had made um, a deal with his wife uh, that if he won the championship that year, it'd been, there'd been so much pressure. As I said, he'd sacrificed so much of his family life. He'd made a deal with his wife, Vivian, that if he won the championship, uh, he would retire from F1. And so that release of emotion that you heard in Abu Dhabi over the team radio, if you, you can find it quite easily on YouTube, uh, where he's talking to his wife, you know, that's the realisation that they've won the championship. All those sacrifices that he's been through that year have come to an end and that this is the end end of his career and so for Nico he knew that the moment he crossed the line he knew that he was he was leaving the sport but we didn't know until until that press conference so it was it was absolutely a massive surprise they kept it 100% quiet I think even Mercedes didn't know about it until uh either the day before the day of that press conference and the uh and the prize giving and so it was um yeah it was a big big uh shock to the system for Nico he he was broken by the end of it you know he he achieved his lifetime goal, but in doing it, he had sacrificed everything. And I think he realized that uh, he probably wasn't able to do that again. And if he felt that he wasn't able to do it again, why continue in Formula One being Lewis Hamilton's teammate and being beaten by him? Because now here's the opportunity to go out on the top, and that's exactly what he did. You've got to know when it's time to hang up those boots or that helmet, I suppose, in this one. So with all that said and done now, I just suppose we can have like a a quick look back on it and just your opinions. Um, as you said, he did achieve his lifetime goal, Nico Rosberg, that is. Um, Lewis, I suppose, during that time, ended up with more world championships than him, just one more than him. But, you know, was was the rivalry beneficial at all to any of them, do you think? Or who came out on top for you? Not many drivers are able to say they've beaten Lewis Hamilton in consecutive races, let alone saying they beat him to a championship. And um, so I think it's it, it's very, very difficult to to say that Lewis completely comprehensively won it. Um, he obviously won it in the sense that Rosberg had to leave, you know, felt it was such a draining experience that he had to physically quit the sport at the end of the season. Um, but it's such a difficult one. And I was, while Lawrence was talking there, I was trying to, trying to work out in my head which of these guys wins it. I think you've got to give it to Lewis as he's still the guy there, but it's such a, it's such a, an interesting argument because Rosberg does deserve a huge amount of credit for what he did and the fact that he was able to beat Lewis in the way he did. Um, I'll give it to, Lewis, myself, but I think it's a very, very close one. I, yeah, I think if you look at the, the rivalry itself, um, I, it's a copper answer, but I think uh, they both won. In some ways, Rosberg probably won more because 
if you look at their starting points, the amount of natural talent they had and how good they were behind the wheel, Lewis was the better driver. So in theory, if everything had gone normally, if he hadn't had the problems earlier in the season, then uh, Lewis would have won that championship as well. Nico probably would have stayed in F1, but I can't imagine that he would have beaten Lewis, uh, you know, again, going forward. So he took that opportunity when it really mattered, um, you know, when it presented to himself, to him. And that's all that he wanted. And he got, he left F1 with what he wanted, which was a world championship. And he did it against arguably the best driver of all time. And they will always have that. And in many respects, I think, I think Rosberg kind of came out the winner. It's only from that kind of, 2016 year as it all came together and you know uh, it, it really was a massive achievement and um, who's the better driver Lewis no doubt about it but Nico got what he wanted and I think you know that's um that's something to be credited and I think uh it was uh it was a very impressive performance throughout that year and the level of personal sacrifice that he put in that year should not be underestimated um and it should actually be kind of praised as a sportsman kind of operating on uh, the highest possible level they can and ultimately when it comes to professional sports people, that's that, that's that's the goal, isn't it? There, there may always be someone better than you, but if you can operate at your own personal level, that's the ultimate goal because you can know you can leave having not left anything on the table, and, and that's what Rosberg could do at the end of 2016. And then I guess finally, because I mean he's the only one that's active, obviously, of the two right now, and that's just Lewis. And we've seen just how it has been the Lewis Hamilton show for how many um, years now, and probably continues to be um, as he you know gets this much closer to the record. But have you seen how it's sort of changed him or molded him either for better or for worse? Do you think if it had that much of an impact, considering now it's hard to pinpoint a rival like that for Lewis, whether they're, you know, in the same car or a different car? I think Lewis always operates at his best when he's got a rival, a really uh, intense rival up against him. Uh, So I think uh, it's only got some of the best out out of Lewis. I think the other thing that it really drummed home for Lewis, and it's always been a case for him, is that he would always rely on that natural talent. He never really felt the need to go and play mind games and stuff like that. And he has this reserve of, well, you know, I went up against somebody who Lewis, I think, felt, you know, kind of was playing unfairly in Rosberg over those years. And so when it comes to, you know, uh, any other kind of rivalry or uh, or tricky situation or whatever that uh, he comes up against, and we've seen it with Max as well, you know, Lewis will consistently say, well, you know, I'll do my talking on the track. He can say whatever he likes about that. So I think... For Lewis, it, it really did strengthen him as a person. And certainly if you look at the Lewis, and there's multiple factors about this, it's not just Rosberg rivalry, but if you look at the Lewis that came to Mercedes in 2013 and the Lewis we have now, you know, it's it's not only a sportsman who's operating on a much higher level. He's so much more at peace. He's so much happier. He's supporting the causes that are important to him. And he's finding kind of, you know, different ways to, uh, to kind of satisfy what he wants to do with his life. And, a bit of that is probably down to Rosberg as well, you know, that, um, that he had this, this intense drive or this really intense part of his life. And, and he kind of, you know, came out of it, uh, the other end as, as, as a better racing driver and probably a better human being as well. So I think it certainly molded Lewis a little bit going into the years that, that followed. Nate, what's your take? Yeah, no, I think that was, that was put perfectly. I think, um, the, the guy who first won from the rivalry and now I think has lost in hindsight is Valtteri Bottas because if Rosberg hadn't quit, Bottas wouldn't have got that seat, but it's made Lewis such a such a competitive beast, such a so mentally strong that as we've seen in the years since, you know, Lewis has been in a completely different stratosphere to Bottas when it's come to championship yeah. fights. So I think that that's been really clear. All the things Lawrence just said has been really clear if you look at how Lewis and Bottas have been. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say he owes a, a, a little bit of it to Nico Rosberg. I was like, imagine, <laughs> imagine if he calls him up again and says, hey, fam, let's, let's share this one. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, there's <laughs> weird you things happen. Know. No, I don't think that would As I said, we all get wiser in age, maybe. You get, uh, not that he's old, but might want to bury the hatchet. Who knows? Who knows? As Lauren said, that book is going to be a juicy one, and I'm pretty sure... Lawrence will probably beat us to getting it. Or it'd be interesting to hear Lewis's side of that little, well, not little spat, but um, it will be interesting, especially because now, as you said, he's just kind of so put together um, in a sense. So thank you guys again, as always. Thank you to everyone that was listening. Hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back again next week. <laughs>